Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, I've been working on uh, my uh, Terrence McKenna uh, section of my book lately, and uh, you know, once again, sort of pondering the the, the mysteries of of, of Terrence, and uh, and particularly. Uh, enjoying drawing a link between his, you know, uh, high weirdness factor of uh, encountering, you know, an alien voice inside of the mushrooms that he was consuming down in Colombia in the early 1970s and all the wild and woolly uh, esoteric experiences that came from that. And, and then really contemplating on the link between uh, that, uh, you know, uh, far out kinds of, uh, kind of thinking and the very pragmatic work that he did along with his brother Dennis that led to their, um, you know, uh, sort of world-shifting publication of uh, cultiva- cultivation methods for uh, psilocybe mushrooms in 1976 in their uh, pseudonymous uh, publication psilocybin mushrooms I think that's what it's called and really thinking about the relationship between the far out and the pragmatic between the esoteric and the technical uh, and the way in which uh, Terence's own mind tried to straddle those worlds uh, his own practice did but also the fact that he was dealing not with uh, LSD or even synthetic DMT, but really the mushroom and the way in which the mushroom itself has its own sort of role to play in weaving together these two domains. Uh, And these questions about the mushroom and how the mushroom sort of, or the psychedelic mushroom uh, can sort of overlap uh, the technical worlds of interconnections of mycelium, of uh, fruiting bodies, of uh, processes of uh, uh, of cultivation and the dissemination of information about cultivation methods and that whole sort of research protocol uh, can be linked to the the extraordinary experiences that uh, psychedelic mushrooms can can occasion uh, and it, it it sort of threw me back to uh, one of my favorite lectures that I saw at the last big uh, maps conference uh, which was by our guest today Joanna Steinhardt. Uh, and she talked about, she's a, um, uh, an anthropologist who's just getting her PhD from uh, UC Santa Barbara and had the great opportunity uh, of, of focusing in on um, uh, DIY mycology as uh, her uh, thesis project. Um, these are folks who are uh, working outside of the domains of typical uh, scientific knowledge production. They're DIY, after all, citizen scientists who are drawn to the mushroom and are drawn to it both for psychedelic reasons and non-psychedelic reasons. And indeed, one of the interesting things about her project is the way in which it uh, shows another way in which psychedelic experience changes people, changes their attitude towards matter, changes their attitudes towards society and organization and information and all these very important things. Uh, but also the ways in which uh, psychedelic mushrooms are not the whole part of not the whole story 
uh, that once you start becoming a, a symbiont with the, with the fungal kingdom, uh, that other sorts of uh, plans, projects, and possibilities become available. Um, so I'm really happy that Joanna decided to uh, join us today on Expanding Minds. So thanks for uh, joining us, Joanna. Hello. Thanks for having me. Great, great. Um, so uh, let me just check. I guess maybe start out with talking about uh, the the main group that you decided to, to focus on. I mean, part of your work was ethnography. You were alert, you were you wanted to uh, check out, uh, uh, you know, who was uh, who's doing this, and sort of how did you discover the sort of main group that um, became your the source of a lot of your uh, interviews. So um, the group, which I call um, in the article that came that was based on that presentation is called um, the Fungal Alliance of the Bay. And that's a pseudonym. Um, they're a group that's based in the Bay Area. Um, and they are an offshoot of a group that's called Radical Mycology that was started in the Pacific Northwest, which is actually a very small group, but they run um, events, convergences, and they produce media and that sort of thing um, that has a very far reach. So um, the Fungal Alliance of the Bay, which I think is actually a really great name. <laughs> I told that to one of my um, interlocutors and they were like, that's a great name. Can I steal that? Because then they're fab. But so fab. Um, so they're in, in the style of an ethnography. They're, they're a local group. It's a very sort of um, localized kind of research. So I'm looking at the cultural history of the Bay Area in California um, also. And um, and I just joined the group and hung out with them, got to know them, did in-depth interviews, um, and sort of followed them in their mycological wanderings. And so what kind of folks are, are, are in a group like this? I mean, it must be quite a, a, a wide range of, uh, of characters. It is. Um, there, there are a lot of characters, so to speak. Um, and I just as an aside, like the way that I chose this topic before I knew anything about it was I went to one of their meetings and I really liked them all. I just felt like I can hang out with these people for a couple of years. Um, it's, I mean, it's diverse in a way in that, um, in that there's a range of sort of um, ages and they're not people who I think would meet and like hang out otherwise but they share a lot of things I, that I think really have to do with kind of like west coast ecological countercultures a lot of them are involved in the food movement a lot of them are really into permaculture um, natural medicine um, they like almost all of them have some sort of organic garden or homestead practice um, they're all things that are like really familiar if you live around here or, you know, or up into Oregon. Um, I, I would call it this kind of like lifestyle politics um, and ecological kind of identities, you know. Well, what, one of the interesting things, as I mentioned up top, is the way in which uh, psychedelics and psychedelic mushrooms in particular are one of the ways that people sort of 
grow towards this sensibility. They, they discover a different way of being in the world. They become interested with mushrooms. They become interested uh, in, um, in plants in general and in developing a different kinds of li- kind of lifestyle in relationship to their experiences. But it's also not the only way in. And so that, that's one of the interesting things about your, your story is it's not primarily a psychedelic story, even though psychedelics uh, play an important role. So I thought maybe we could just start out talking about uh, how people have integrated their their psychedelic experiences with mushrooms into their deeper commitment to uh, these practices and, and and these worldviews. Yeah. So that was so. I think part of the reason, like what happened, how I chose this topic was that I I was doing I was actually studying urban farmers. Um, and to be honest, it was really boring. And I was, and I was just like at the beginning of my field work and I was like, I can't do this. Like I cut arugula for four hours and I was bored by the people I was talking to. And I was just like, I can't do this. And then I ran into one of these, um, radical mycologist people and, um, we had a conversation and his path to mushrooms was through Terrence McKenna and Paul Stamets and was, was very much informed by like psychedelic experiences um and so i sort of assumed that they were all gonna be like that um and and that and that sort of psychedelic hook was one of the things that got me because psychedelics are are interesting to me um but then it turned out that that wasn't the case in a way that was really interesting to me which was what i tried to address in that in that um presentation and in the article or in the chapter um which is that whilst a lot of people came to mushrooms through psychedelics, there were also a lot of people that came to a culture that had been clearly shaped by psychedelics. If you think about American cultural history and this and this sort of ecological counterculture that comes out of the 70s, um, but they themselves hadn't done psychedelics. So it was like they were able to access a worldview or experiences of nature or ideas that that people would call psychedelic perhaps but they were able to access them through other ways um and also i mean a a couple side notes to this is that i think there was some hesitation with some people to say explicitly i have these ideas because i ate a bunch of psychedelic mushrooms. So it is possible that it was like concealed in my interviews, but I I don't think I don't think that actually is a good explanation for for the other narratives that I got because I think that um the other narratives are also available to people, you know? I mean the truth is like you eat psychedelic mushrooms and go live the rest of your life and it all becomes interwoven anyway right and i think that that there's that feedback loop between like when when you're you know let's say you're like 27 that means you went to college um in like the late 2000 what did the knots um are people saying that now i don't know but um that like those people had psychedelic experiences at some point but they're but they're embedded and they're of a culture where psychedelics has been a part of that culture for for a generation now you know like their parents did psychedelics so so um so i think that there's 
there's like a, a resonance and a feedback that's happening there where you where we're now in that kind of next generation. Well, this raises, I think, a really interesting question. I, and I, I've spoken, I think, about it pr- pr- uh, pretty recently on the show as well, which is that there's sort of an idea that there are certain inherent insights with psychedelic experience or that they have a large tendency to produce certain kinds of worldviews. And one of those that I think is, is most uh, uh, supportable is the idea, although I, I want to ask you whether what you feel about it, is the idea that somehow uh, the experience of, of interconnection, of, of melting the sort of boundary of the, of the self into the world, of recognizing multiple agents and multiple sources of value, even multiple dimensions of existence, that these kinds of experiences, which are often reported by people, lead, tend to lead to or support a more ecological worldview, a more uh, a worldview that's grounded not just in, in nature and the way nature works, but also a kind of embrace of complexity or embrace of interconnection as a kind of mode. And obviously, there's a sort of politics that comes out of that. And some of the politics that you talk about, the, the radical part of the radical mycologists, which we can get to in a moment, you know, very much carries on some of those ideas. But I'm wondering, as you, you know, looked at it and, and particularly thinking about the fact that, as you say, now this is a well-established culture, the association mm-hmm. of these ideas. Do mm-hmm. you, are, are you more hesitant to think about psychedelics as having some inherent kind of message? Uh, uh, and, you know, if that's the case, then is this just sort of a blip or do you do you still see that this kind of ecological expression is going to be one of the main ways that people who really try to live, try to walk their talk or walk their trip uh, are going to find themselves uh, engaging with the world? Hmm. Um, yeah, that question is so interesting to me. And um, I think that as an anthropologist, I... I err on the side of skepticism. And I think that's why my approach was this kind of, that doesn't seem to be the case in what's happening with, with these people that I spoke to. And so why is that? Um, and the, and that there were people that arrived at this, at what appears to be a psychedelic ecological worldview, but didn't take psychedelics, um, which I, Quoting one of the people I spoke to, he, he I asked him at some point if he considers himself religious or spiritual, and he he said he was a psychedelic naturalist, and I just thought that was such a great term. Um, so I, and he was someone who had one of these classical psychedelic experiences where he ate, I, I presume it was mushrooms, and very much felt at one with the world, and that something that he like carried out in in his life and 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 um inspired him to pursue permaculture and all these other things to engage with the world as if it's this abundant kind of infinite group of agents you know of of things that are living in their own way um but i don't know i'm like i psychedelics are one of these i mean they're such a unstable thing you know the experience itself is unstable like the i mean this is the classic set and setting problem right and this is like like nicholas longlitz and his ethnography of the psychedelic scientists i mean this is this 
thing that he's constantly turning around that they're they're always trying to control somehow for because that's how science works right you have a control and you you somehow set some standard that then you measure against but like it just doesn't work with psychedelics because what are you controlling against like consciousness itself is malleable how do you define it and then they're working on that in some way and they're so it's like they i mean what do i mean the the psychedelics um but so so i think there's this like i mean you could argue that because there's this feedback loop, this resonance, because of the time, the, the historical period that psychedelics came into um, American culture and people were looking for this kind of counter to modern alienation. And then there was this beginning of a kind of environmental, this sort of new environmental sensibility of this like post silent spring era. Um, that because people were looking for that, they fell into that role, and then they the the experience itself is shaped that way. You know, I think that now, like when people, let's say, to go back to our, you know, this like hypothetical nineteen-year-old, let's say, like UC Santa Cruz, who's eating mushrooms. I mean, maybe UC Santa Cruz is a little bit too obvious, but you know, at any like American university, and they're eating mushrooms with their friends, like there is a set cultural model of what they're going to experience you know and 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 it's true like it could go off the rails right i mean because that's the uncertainty that's like the instability of it but there is a set model that like they're probably they could have a spiritual experience they could like you know ha there's an idea of the kind of like wonder that you're supposed to experience i don't know so um well, I mean, this this actually makes me think of of something we you know we talked about before the the show, which is uh, that earlier you had done uh, some uh, some master's work looking at a very different topic, though one that also involved psychedelics, and it was just an example of just how open ended the results of of, of psychedelics can be, because you were studying, you were in Israel uh, looking at American Jews who found their way back, or not even necessarily back, but came to embrace. Yeah you know, hardcore Orthodox Judaism and the full on right. Israeli mode, which is no joke. Right. Uh, and yet and yet you discovered that that some of the motivations that brought them there were sometimes psychedelics, which is not yeah. something that we would. That's not part of that normal set and setting matrix for, you know, your average 19 year old at a, to eat mushrooms right. at, at a university. <laughs> Uh, but so I, that that really fascinates me. So talk right. t talk a little bit about that and and how how you came to see the function that psychedelics had played in those lives, which is right. clearly a different. I mean, tale. I think it played this. What's amazing is I think it played the same function, you know. But like, like if you um, because so they also I think a lot of those most of them were young men but there were some young women that also had this experience that they were experimenting with psychedelics as teenagers or at college which was also my experience and it opened them up to this sort of realm of experience that they then wanted answers for or they they wanted to channel in some way I mean which is partially using their language um and and part of that, which I think a lot of it also comes from American identity politics, that they were squeamish about appropriating someone else's culture. And then there was also this question of like, what do I have? Like, what can I bring to this? What was our tradition, you know? Um, and then they start 
studying Judaism and they stumble on Shlomo Karlbach, who you talked about a little bit in your, your talk at the Roxy. Um, and, and Karlbach, his whole thing was um, finding these hippies in the 60s and 70s and bringing um, Hasidism to them, Hasidut, like the, this mystical philosophy of Judaism. It's actually, it takes the Kabbalah, the, the mystical sort of tradition, and then um, Hasidism is actually started in the 1700s, but there's this neo-Hasidic kind of revival that he is part of. Um, and he used to say that giving Has Hasidut to these people was like giving them heroin in a way, I mean, which sounds unhealthy, but that it was like they were so hungry for for something. And, and you see that too with the younger people. So there is this like return narrative of, of returning to Judaism and even I mean, that's one of the things that, that resonates across these kind of like American countercultural use of psychedelics of, of people trying to return to some, um, some other state of, of like, of harmony where they're aligned with the universe and somehow that opens them up. But it's, it also reminds me of um, Charles Taylor has, you know, his like, his, uh, slant on all this is is that you have these moments of I mean it's basically like the classic um, moment of um, what did Durkheim call that where you're like uh, effervescence you know you have the moment of effervescence and and that some people are okay with just having that moment but a lot of people want to they it, they can't just have the moment and let it go like you just also you find that in psychedelic um discourses right of like what do we do with it yeah well i think what's interesting is is how some people who aren't satisfied with just having the experience go on a religious quest mm -hmm. uh and they're they're fine leaving aside uh the kind of constraints of naturalism and skepticism in order to pursue and embolden their experiences and but there's also a kind of mode which I think some of the people you were talking to, like the guy who calls himself a psychedelic naturalist, mm -hmm. where they are also inspired to not just go, OK, that was a cool experience. I'm moving on. But to actually live their life differently, to pursue different sources of value and, and practice mm -hmm. based on their revelation, right. let's call it, except yeah. they they stay a little closer, if you will, to naturalism. They stay a little bit closer to science to biology to human practices and it's a, it's like they maybe those more sublime mystical dimensions are part of their experience but it's not really what they're they're on about and and i i think that's a very yeah. uh inter it's in, a, in some ways a more interesting development a yeah. possibly a more influential one or a more needed one at this point yeah. uh, in in our existence and yeah. so I guess what I w would want to ask you about now is how you saw the kind of the politics of these radical mycology groups, mm -hmm. the, the way they approached both dealing with other human beings and, and particularly dealing with the non-human world as, yeah. a, as a very explicit embodied political position that still mm -hmm. had, it was still animated by some of this, this psychedelic consciousness. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's, well, there's two sort of answers to that. One is, um, is that they were engaging with science in a particular way. I think this is like, what was one of the um, initial sort of 
things that fascinated me about their of this about this group and and what they were doing i mean the actual like technical practices is that in order to um I mean, as you see in, in the McKenna's manual, right? In order to cultivate mushrooms, you need to understand microbiology and you don't just need to understand it. Like you need to be minimally fluent in it to understand like how to create at least a semi-sterile space, you know, and how to sort of like move around the um, microbial world to, so to keep your fungus safe from contaminants. So. Um, so I think that they engage with science um, in a way that is political because they are, um, they're, I mean, they're really into open science and DIY science and this idea that like um, these, these ca capacities should be accessible, you know, and like, how do we take this science and make it easy, actually, and like make it so the average person can do it um, in, in a way that the average person can experiment with how to apply mycology to solve ecological problems. So that would be like microremediation, right? Um, but the other side of it is that, so I, I mean, well, these things are related, but there is this interesting like riffing on um, kind of rhizomatic forms, right? The rhizomorph being the form of um, that fungi take in the world. So they're not, they're not like a plant which has roots and a trunk and leaves and, um, and is, it's very easy to identify a plant, like an individual plant. Um, fungi are just a complete, they're like in another world of how life happens, you know, and how, what it looks like and, how it works, you know, because they like to identify a single fungus is actually difficult. They're not, there's, they're in an undifferentiated network and which is, which, which like everyone who studies fungi knows that, but like to even wrap your head around that is bizarre. You know, they don't have like, like there's no, yeah. And, and you know, even like a plant or an animal or even, I don't know, like a protozoa or something, you know, they don't have, they're just, a network of cells, you know? Um, so anyway, sorry, I went on a tangent. So um, it's a relevant tangent. <laughs> yes. I think that, you know, you, you study that and um, it's fascinating. There's so many sort of like the way it, it gets you to think differently about forms of life and forms of living. And one of them is this kind of radical horizontality. You know, the, this is like the Deleuzian, riff on things why Deleuze and Guattari loved um rhizomorphs because they they're they're anarchistic you know there's this kind of um horizontality it's decentralized um and it is like that in in the natural world from what I understand like you can have a giant um patch of fungi which could be a bunch of different individual fungi that are mixed together in different ways um and they interact with their environment and do different things in different parts of their environment, depending on what's needed, even if it's like one organism. So, so that is something that comes up um, in the in the functioning of the group. Um, but it's also, I mean, and also a lot of people in the group have kind of anarchistic um, 
leanings just in terms of decentralization they're anti-authoritarian they're radical feminists and that sort of thing um but i i think i mean i it's one of these things that i think is kind of vague and um i think they have those political leanings also just because they all live around here in the bay area um and i could see like I suspect that there are probably similar um, DIY mycological kind of um, communities or leanings in libertarian places. Like I could, I could see that. I could see someone taking those ideas and um, morphing them into a kind of like right wing libertarianism too. Well, I mean, the connection between you know anarchism and libertarianism is is very weird because you it's one of those like you loop around and you find yourself in the same place except absolutely opposite yeah. and it's yeah you know, that's a whole that's a whole other story you know tracking yeah. how though even just how those terms uh operated and how they also operated inside of of the counterculture i mean the counterculture which we we think of as for its pro progressive leftist politics but it's equally an anti-authoritarian a stream uh, within which you're going to find tendencies that, you know, some people call, you know, libertarianism is just right wing anarchism or, you know, anarchism right. of the individual rather than anarchism of the group. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so it gets really it gets really complicated. But I think the, the point being is that there is not there is not a necessarily progressive politics mm -hmm. implied in these sorts of networks and. Uh, ideas that they still take different form in different soil as 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 it right. were but one but one go ahead Sorry, can i just add about that um one thing that you do come across the more you study them is that just the like immense kind of mutability and diversity and strangeness of life that i think does lend itself to a kind of subversion of of gender and and the and the kind of like like the social conservative side of things, I think that there is something there. Cause like, there's no, like, you know, there's this thing recently with this um, conservative uh, philosopher in Canada who published this book where he like is using all these different life forms to argue that um, the traditional like fam nu nuclear family is, is, is natural, right? Quote unquote natural. I mean, fungi are just one among many other life forms that are just like, I mean, there, there, are, there are fungi that there are species that have thirteen thousand sexes. There's just no, there's, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and, an, and another thing that happens uh, that that I think uh, is re perhaps related to this is that we're not just talking about other forms of life as models for human existence or human sociality. Uh -huh. It's that the humans who get involved with these other mm -hmm. forms of life both consciously and unconsciously become kind of symbiotic with them. Yeah. And that there's this whole story of symbiotic and, and that some of the yeah. people you were talking to very much conceive of what they're doing as mm -hmm. kind of almost being representatives of the, of the fungal yeah. reality inside human yeah. reality and trying to bring those two mm -hmm. worlds, you know, together a little bit more. And, yeah. and the whole idea of interspecies um, mm -hmm. existence, the way in which we're, you could say that one of the things we're hap that's happening in our moment historically is we're kind of waking up to the ways in which we're human beings mm -hmm. are always already embedded in all these relationships with non-human right. entities. And it seems yeah. to me that the the mycologist, the radical mycologist, is one where they're they're bringing that consciousness mm -hmm. awake, you know, as as a real mm -hmm. kind of possibility. 
So I'm curious, mm-hmm. like from an, as an, as an outsider who was also in, you know, invested in some of these experiences, how do you, how did you, how did you come to see that, that question of, of interspecies or interkingdom uh, yeah. relationship that was, that, that, that comes up a lot around, uh, you know, mushroom heads and, and really all kind of ethnobotanist heads that I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's funny. So because I have this like skeptical, like I err on the side of skepticism, it took me a really long time to come around to seeing like, oh, it is actually what they say it is. <laughs> you know, like I, I call them the fungal alliance of the bay because this alliance um, language is everywhere in this culture coming from, um, I mean, beginning with McKenna and both both of the McKennas and then um, through Paul Stamets. Um, and the thing is, though, the more you look at it, like, I mean, alliance is maybe a wishful word to use, but there is this, um, I mean, just the, the history of how um, psilocybe, which is the Latin term for that genus, um, how psilocybe mushrooms were like discovered and spread around, you know, urban areas and also para-urban areas, like these kind of um, farmlands around cities is, is amazing. You see like people become obsessed with them. They start discovering them. So you have like Paul Stamets and uh, Gaston Guzman and Jonathan Ott and these, you know, mycologists who are going around the Pacific Northwest in like the early mid seventies. I think it's more than mid 70s they start discovering all these other species and then people start hippies start picking them and the spores are being spread all over right so you see like they're they're kind of this weed mushroom they like grow all over but then as soon as people start paying attention to them and and feeling you know affection for them and um and wanting to cultivate them they they start to you know they start to spread and it's interesting there was actually a really um great little article that came out about the about the spread of um psilocybin mushrooms in the uk where it's called the title is aliens in the flower bed just a great title um so and and they and it's written by two mycologists and they're trying to figure out how did these alien species in the sense that they're not native to the UK they're not considered native to the UK how did they start showing up like in you know mulching all over like urban areas um, and they don't really have an answer but they they suspect it has to do with um I mean one the, the rise of mulching the rise of like landscape or you know landscape um, like gardens and stuff and these kind of like institutional gardens, which is fairly recent. Um, but it's not like, I mean, you can't like Psilocybe cyanescens, um, which was discovered in the fifties by a mycologist. She's actually like a plant pathologist at Kew Gardens in London. <laughs> um, and so that's, you know, that's where it was discovered. That's like the, the, what's it called, the holotype or something? Like if you go look at the, I mean, they probably have it in the herbarium at Kew Gardens. Um, but then no one really knows where it's native to. Like Paul Stamets finds, you know, he he finds, you know, related mushrooms all over the Pacific Northwest. And he, um, somewhere I think he said that he thinks they're probably native to the dunes, like in the Pacific Northwest and the Washington area. 
but um, but who knows? Like, how did it end up at Kew Gardens in the mid '50s? It's obviously been there for a while. So, I mean, you could say, well, maybe a mycologist went there to do something and they carried its spores. But like, I don't think people knew that species existed before she. And I don't know if they. I don't know when they. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's yeah. Like, well, you know what's funny is what what you're describing is that it's 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 one of one of the things about thinking in a fungal way is that you come across the same pattern at different levels of scale and which is a kind of complicated way of leading to the observation that what you're talking about there which is that basically if you start to go looking for mushrooms you start finding mushrooms but this is also yeah. very much the experience of foragers and like yeah. one of the most remarkable kind of states of consciousness that you can shift into is you go looking for something like you're hunting yeah. for you know Psilocybe yeah. sign essence and you're yeah. you're in the you know they're somewhere and you don't see them you don't see them you're walking around you're bumping in you're pulling up other mm-hmm. things blah, blah blah and then suddenly you notice one and then you notice more and then you can see you tune in and then right. you see them and, and foragers talk about this all the time this kind of uh, sort of sympathetic perception mm-hmm. that right. suddenly changes kind of a landscape and it it, yeah. it almost feels that's that's part of the kind of uh, now you see them, now you don't game of the mushroom. And it's even the case that like in a field, if there's no fruiting bodies, we don't know there's any mycelium. Uh, who knows? Right. And then like, boom, there they are one night. Bang. OK, now we're never there. And, yeah. and so there's this sort of game of of like of concealment and revelation and tuning in that that seems to be true of the mushroom again at multiple levels of scale. Right. Yeah, totally. And that's um, actually the chapter I just finished for my dissertation talks a lot about that, which a lot of it is actually um, sort of inspired and picking up on these um, these ideas and stories that Paul Stamets tells in um, a lecture that he gave in 1999. And then it went on YouTube, I don't know when, probably not too long ago. Have you seen it? It's a psychoactivity conference. I don't think so. I mean, I've seen him speak, but I don't think I've seen that one. So it's like, it's before, it's when he's sort of like crystallizing the ideas in mycelium running. And it's after, so it's after the like manuals and kind of like moving on to more philosophical um, kind of like topics. And he goes on these riffs about all the different ways you can cultivate these wild philosophies in your garden, but also like in in um, like farm farmland, basically, and in like where they grow. That there's a bunch of them that grow in like um, like they grow symbiotically with grass seed, like in you know I guess in Washington they. Um, it's a major industry of like producing seeds for grass. <laughs> and this is one of these things that like, yeah, of course, you know, I never would think about it otherwise, but of course, yeah, there's a giant industry for people that create grass seeds because there's all these lawns in our society, you know? So apparently there's this um, species, which I can't remember which one, I think it was some Simulanciata that grows symbiotically with these grass seeds. So they would go to these farms, which are not really tended, right? And there just are like millions of mushrooms. And and there's like a bunch of other cases like that, where it's like people in the know will kind of semi-cultivate these species that are already growing wild and they're, and they're getting spread all over the country. So yeah. it's like, 
it's it's pretty amazing. That's a great lecture that like everyone should watch. Sky. Great, I'll check that out. What's the is what's the name of it? I mean, how do we find? Um, I, I think if you just look like Paul Stamets, Psychoactivity. Okay. Nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. On YouTube. Well, you know, one of the things this 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 also leads to that you know Stamets talks about, uh, and 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 you know you also write about is how if you take this you know, rhizomatic, networked, uh, mycelial kind of mind frame, uh, and you bring it into the, into the level of technology, of course, we start talking about uh, the internet. And of course, the internet, just as a dissemination uh, device, uh, was part of this process. I mean, if we can look at, you know, if you, if we want to tell the story from the, from the, philosophy's point of view it's going to talk about exploiting all of these weird liminal zones that human beings create in their you know their farmland their the the disturbed soil but they also kind of went oh yeah we can move it through this internet thing through and by the way thereby disseminate all this information including cultivation techniques and one of the things that you look at that i'd love to hear more about is how partly through the internet uh, that the technology of of cultivation itself kind of developed from, let's say, the McKenna's mm-hmm. first handbook, leaving, leading through you know PF Tech and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. I, that that technical story also seems to be resonant, if you will, with this kind yeah. of larger fungal mm-hmm. archetype. Um, yeah. So yeah, what did you find when you when you tracked that technical story? That was like another case where I was like, it can't be like that. That's too obvious. <laughs> and then like you get further into it and you're like, oh my God, it is like that. You know, like, yeah, it's this network of networks. Like you have the fungal network and then you have the internet. And I mean, that's another thing that like Paul Stamets often says is, um, is there's a mycelial archetype, you know? Um, and yeah, the... I mean, the internet, it's also one of these truisms of just like how the internet revolutionized everything. Um, but I mean, it's amazing. Like, so the PF tech, which was really one, I mean, it was one guy's um, invention, Slosby Fanaticus, but, um, but it spread so fast. And what was amazing about that invention, which also I should say, like he was building on all these other cultivators that were, that were sharing knowledge, but um, is that he found a way to do it really with like minimal uh, sterilization needs, you know? So you don't need like a huge autoclave. You don't need to worry about your autoclave exploding. Um, you don't need to worry about like all these, you know, you, you need to worry a little bit, but it's like pretty much he, he found a way to like get that out of the frame, um, which is fascinating in terms of this like evolution towards accessibility and just ease of use. Um, and making it like, I mean, they call it foolproof. I mean, it's, I don't know, it is pretty foolproof. I mean, everyone I know who has ever like grown psychedelic mushrooms, they've always used that method. It's, and it's so easy to find, you just Google PF tech. Um, but then there were a number of other like little tweaks um, that came out of these forums that were started in like 1995, or maybe a little earlier actually, but um, there's Shroomery and Mycotopia. And both of those are just these like classic internet forums full of people like a lot of it is is technical stuff, but there's also like these philosophical, you know, they have sub threads and you know, who knows what's on there. But um 
but they, you know, people like Tinker and then they would upload their photos and through all these people reading together and like a lot of them, I don't, you know, they don't know each, they're, they're under pseudonyms, you know, um, they came up with these like great, just, it's like a crowdsourced innovation. You have like the, the airplane, um, or I'm sorry, airport lid, which is this also like, it, it makes it so much easier if you don't have um, an autoclave um, and like monotubs and all kinds of things that I probably don't even know about. There's also just like really weird shit on there. Like if you want to want to try to figure out how to like actually grow cordyceps on worms, you, I found a thread on there. There's like a guy who did it. I mean, there's probably several guys who did it. You know, you like buy the mealworms on the internet. Anyway, there's also like YouTube videos. There's a bunch of PDFs you can download. I mean, people I know who learn cultivation now just do it online. You don't even need to buy a book anymore. Yeah, no, it's really remarkable that the whole growth of, of, of citizen science, and it's interesting to to think about the mycology uh, and, and, you know, other and chemistry as well, but the ways in which uh, our people's interest in, in psychedelics and in, in exploring uh, novelty in psychedelics has really been a source of you know, citizen science. And if you're like pro-citizen science, you got to like kind of chalk it up to drugs because it got mm -hmm. so many people learning yeah. about all this stuff and being interested in. And, and then not only just for their own benefit, but the, it's almost invariably linked into a notion of, of shared culture and shared information. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things that's happening right now is a kind of side note, um, or maybe something that we could comment on now is how... As the psychedelic renaissance, uh, you know, steamrolls forward and more and more um, official bodies, organized bodies, professional bodies, uh, corporate bodies, uh, uh, pharmacological firms, et cetera, et cetera, start wanting their, their piece of the pie that's obviously going to be coming much larger, uh, how the citizen science aspect of existing psychedelic culture or the psychedelic underground um, is confronting a very different kind of intellectual property regime. And it's, it's going to yeah. be very strange to see these, or very mutant to watch these processes uh, uh, happen. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it seems to me that, that uh, in a way, this kind of raises maybe a more uh, mythological question that the, the fact that you know, psilocybin on the one hand has is playing such an important role in the psychedelic renaissance, you know, unlike LSD, unlike smoke DMT, ayahuasca is coming in sort of, but like the mushroom works. It's short. We, it's no, yeah. it's knowable. We understand it, but it's also synthesized. So we have suddenly this rise in awareness around psilocybin mm -hmm. or the mushroom but at the same time there's this weird pull which again is is more mythological than anything between this mm -hmm. whole world of cultivation that's deeply embedded in biology and in interspecies relationships and the morphology of mycelium ah, da, 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 da. and at the same time this the, the you know the same old western extraction synthesis you know mm -hmm. decoupling from those networks yeah. uh yeah. Well, have you thought about that are you what are you what, what do you see as is, is there are some interesting tensions go, going there? Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't, I mean, I thought about it a little bit, um, not super in depth, but I mean, one thing that 
it's interesting like we were talking about that um that sort of feedback loop of the set and setting that they're up until now i think it's been really clear what the um what the kind of cultural narratives were around what a trip is um and it did involve nature somehow um and i think that we're starting to see some divergences there you know um i mean clearly like those cultural narratives are also informing these the experiences of people in these trials which is something i've always wondered about you know what i don't know if any if any anthropologists are working on that right now but um but i mean besides patricia um who i mentioned before who's studying psychedelic therapy but um but i so i I kind of think, I mean, the way they set up the room is really interesting, right? And these trials, they have, they set up a very cozy room. They put certain things on the walls. Like there's kind of a genre of art that they put on the wall. Um, and there's kind of an idea of like what that physical experience is supposed to be like. They're not going out and walking through a, a redwood forest, you know? They're not like, although I do think that they have pictures of natural things on the wall. Um, and I think there's already an idea of the, the sort of healing experience that you're supposed to have that is a psychological, I mean, sort of a psycho-spiritual experience, right? So, um, so I don't know. I feel like there might be a kind of divergence in those. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, I, I, we got about 10 minutes left, and I wanted to ask a little bit about your, your own experiences, since obviously you're partly interested in these topics because of your own exposure to psychedelics and how interesting they are. Yeah. And um, I guess maybe in a way I'm coming back to this question about nature. I mean, for me, you know, I'm okay with the idea that it's just a story, that psychedelics are intimately involved with na with nature or the non-human world. Uh, yeah. I'm okay if that's just a story. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with it. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm I'm interested in the ways in which these things force me out of the human. I'm mm -hmm. I'm wary of the ways in which the human circuit just reinvests re in itself, and that psychedelics can also just kind of mm -hmm. drive this sort of circularity of of merely human signs. Whereas what interests me about it is how it forces a confrontation mm -hmm. or an encounter to some yeah. degree outside of that. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I'm just kind of maybe curious as you've, you know, studied psychedelics, thought about this issue of set and setting, the feedback loops of expectation, and mm -hmm. indeed been exposed to some of the ways that other people have constructed their psychedelic experiences, either becoming Orthodox Jews or becoming mm -hmm. uh, radical anarchist uh, for, uh, foragers. Um, how that's sort of shaped in your own experience. Like how much do you feel like you're just stuck inside your own set and setting? Or, you know, are there ways in which the awareness of these processes have actually changed your experiences? Mm, it's really interesting. I, I mean, while you were talking about it, I just realized that I think my, so many of my ideas come from my personal experience because I actually, I first took psychedelics when I was very young, as like a young teenager. And I grew up um, in the suburbs of Detroit. And so I was involved in the party scene there, which is like the tech techno scene. So I was going to these like rave parties, although we didn't really call them raves. But, um, but so I was taking psychedelics in like the most 
artificial setting you can imagine in like like if you're going to have a movie setting of like urban dystopia you know like in these sort of like abandoned warehouses basically where like you walk outside and you're like in an industrial zone of Detroit so um and I had I definitely had blissed out sublime experiences that was mostly on LSD um and so I don't I but it wasn't yeah it wasn't was it related I don't know it's like the natural world played into it but um but it wasn't a huge part of my experience and even later taking taking mushrooms like I think it's possible to to have a uh I mean, to have an experience that has nothing to do with the natural world. But I think that, I think actually part of, I, sorry, I think I totally lost your question. And now I'm just, uh, <laughs> but, um, but I think part of the thing is that you take these substances and you have an experience that is completely abnormal to your norm, to your consciousness, right? And you come out of it and you're like, what the fuck just happened? Like, what was that, right? I think that everybody who has an intense psychedelic experience, there's some feeling of that after. And if you ate a mushroom, then you think, well, it was a mushroom, right? Like, what, what did that mushroom do to me? You know, there's this kind of like, it came from a thing that grows out of the earth. Um, and where it's a pill that's given to you by a doctor or by some dude at a party um it's a different there's something about the like what the the origin of the substance and like it where it where you know in the sort of like social world that you're you're embedded in um i've i i totally lost your question no no you know you were totally running with it it was it was just you know how uh you know how these these kinds of issues you know impact our you know our, our our own um our own experiences uh, I mean, I guess right. another another version uh, version of that, or a, a way of kind of uh, you know moving towards a conclusion, is is whether from the psychedelic experience or really just your exposure to this sort of rhizomatic politics, both of science and of relating to the natural world and the food world, which we haven't really talked about. Uh, oh, yeah. But how much you've seen that kind of you know, change your own life, your own practices, like how it, it, have you just sort of naturally uh, pursued it? Or is it almost like, oh, my God, I be, before I just turned around and now I'm suddenly one of these people or, you know, how much have you become have, has your participant observation line sort of shifted uh, as you've done right. this research? Well, um, I never I never tripped with anybody in my field work. I will say that um, I always I I think when I started, I thought I would, and then I'd have a chapter about the quote-unquote field trip, and it would be funny. But um, but I never did that. Um, I'm, you know, to be honest, I mean, I think I had, as as uh, I call him Oscar in the article, um, as Oscar calls himself a psychedelic naturalist. I think I already had that worldview, and. Um, I also, I mean, I've also done a bunch of other psychedelics. So, you know, there was like LSD, there was psilocybin, and then there was a long break. And then um, I came, when I came back to it, I did psilocybin again. And, oh, I remember where I was going before. Um, that the first time I took psilocybin again, this is like when I was, you know, in my 
I guess in my early thirties, um, it was a very comfortable experience. Like I hadn't tripped in like 15 years and it, it, you know, as it came on and I, I'm like, Oh, I'm back in this mind space again. It was this familiar mind space, you know, like I knew what it was. I felt comfortable in it. Um, so that it's like, I knew what to expect, you know? And I, and, and I guess that's what I was saying about this, like feedback thing. I mean, it also happens on an individual level. Like I, you know, I didn't have any like urge to connect with nature. I just felt happy, like giggling at things, you know? Um, and then after that, I also took Ibogaine like uh, a couple years later. And so all of these things kind of like cumulatively um, give, give me, I mean, my idea of reality is, um, is definitely psychedelic. So, so, um, so I think I was already there and, um, actually, and I think that background also lends itself really well to anthropology <laughs> as a side note. Yeah, but, um, I, I agree. I think I, I very much agree that I think one way you, you go through these experiences, uh, is you come out an, an anthropologist. I mean, if you're not a believer type, if you are more of a, a you have a skeptical leaning, what you come up yeah. with is, is, is anthropology, including the enigmas of anthropology, the, the yeah. experiences that you don't, you can't explain, or the participant-observer relationship that breaks down, and then suddenly you're seeing the spirits that you're, you're the people you're studying, you're seeing, you're like, whoa, what's happening? You know, there's there are these feedback loops that I think have uh, go beyond uh, rational explanation, um, right. but but you can still approach them anthropologically. And I think. I think that one of the things that you get from um, psychedelics, or at least that I got from it, is this sense of the kind of like um, the abundance of reality, you know, and this kind of like there's a sense of the infinite in in it, and um, and all the different ways things could be and could be seen, and um, and I think that's why like I mean it's funny because I'm saying that 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 is something that I got from psychedelics, but I think it's possible to to get there in other ways. Right, right. You know? Well, I think we're going to have to wind it up there. So, Joanna, thanks so much for uh, talking to us on Expanding Mind. Yeah, thanks. Okay. All right, folks, until uh, until next week, keep your minds open. Mm -hmm.